I'm throwing it to you, Lester. What is it? The name of the topic is sliding doors moments. So where that term comes from is... What, did, did just Les freeze or did I freeze? Yeah, yeah, no, no, Les froze. Let me text him. <laughs> Les, you froze. Right at the key moment. I know. It made me think of the following thing. <laughs> the big reveal. <laughs> it's like The Bachelor. He's, he's bringing out the rose. Now we throw to commercial. Top shelf cliffhanger. It's as good as it gets. <laughs> you are now the host. Oh, I'm the host. I'm hosting this motherfucker. Oh, you're the host? Oh, good. Grab a drink. Yeah, yeah. Go, you, get, you better get your booze delivered. Funny thing is, Tara Warren quickly volunteered to go get us booze when she found out. Like Tara, like Watchman Tara? Yeah, Watchman Tara, Tara Warren. Tara Warren. <laughs> <laughs> I went, what, did he, what did she say to, to Steve? I'm going to tune you like a sixth grader. <laughs> he called him skinny jeans or skinny pants. <laughs> I think she said something about his skinny ass. And Yeah, his skinny ass. I'm going to tune you like a sixth grader. <laughs> Okay, I'm back. Well, we're going to have to do the whole segue again. I'll just start my shtick over from the top then. Cauliflower, <clears throat> <sighs> <sighs> cauliflower, broccoli, broccoli. <laughs> down some ro- <laughs> just, I wish we had video there. Man, I got to no start kidding. this whole thing again. Bad. <laughs> down some rum. <laughs> Two ounces of rum and off we go. Maybe I should take this opportunity to go get some more booze. Yeah, you could. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to. Hold on. <laughs> Okay, Lester, you got you got your homeless hair organized. You've got your Westminster yeah. sherry. <laughs> Westminster sherry. <laughs> the topic is what's referred to as. I'm just disappointed nobody's moment was joining this podcast. We joke around a lot on the podcast, but serious things happen in life too. And we recently heard of the passing of Dale Dockhorn, one of the original Juniper Jaguars. We remember him as a kind-hearted soul and a fun-loving guy. We'd like to offer our condolences to Debbie and the Dockhorn family. It's May 2021. This is episode 42, Sliding Doors. Here's the disclaimer. There are some curse words. They're not beeped. It's too much work. And at times, we may be mildly offensive. It's not aimed at you, it's just who we are. This is the Snow Day Podcast with CEO Leslie Hansen. Do you have circus performer on your resume? <laughs> not anymore. I grew, I grew past that. Dr. George Alvarez. So that was my sliding door moments, is cold calling a guy in Australia. Leadership expert, Stephen DeGroote. Steve, no. I will tune you up like no. a fucking fifth grader. No, no. fifth grader. This is sacred ground. Don't make me throw your ass into the hallway. Go ahead this. there, skinny man. <laughs> and me, Bruce Krentz, the one they left behind. So probably the sliding door moment was me doing that Zamboni joke, because I'm sure I would have got the job if I hadn't said that. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry, be happy now. It's been almost six weeks, which is hard for me to believe since we Don't last worry. did a podcast. It took a little while to get the other one out because I was doing some kitchen renos. That's the weak excuse. No apologies 
just a weak <laughs> excuse for that one dragging a little bit. It, it's only been out a couple of weeks though. So if, to me anyways, it feels kind of fresh that we're jumping back into this. I'm not going to bury the lead, fellas. I'm going to start the check-in on uh, my COVID journey continues. Marnie and I are quarantined. Oh no. We're, we have to stay home for two no. weeks. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> yeah, crazy. Uh, two kids at school, two twins. And their parents are, uh, like they all live together. Their parents are teachers and it's twins in the high school. And they picked up COVID at work and it's the B117 variant. One of the kids is in Marnie's class, so she's a close contact. And Friday at 4.30, she got a call saying, hey, you got to stay home. It's been a couple days since the exposure show. We're home for 11. And because it's the variant, Murphy and I have to stay home with her for the next two weeks. But the uh, the awesome kick in the bag for me is Murphy gets to keep going back to work. He's had both of his vaccines for over two weeks. I had my second vaccine for nine days. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was four days short of not having to quarantine with Marnie. And so that's how the that's how the regulations work in Manitoba. If you have both of your shots, you're no longer required to quarantine on exposure. If you've had both of them and your second one for over two weeks, then you um, you still have to self-monitor yeah. because as we talked about in, in previous pods, you could still transmit the virus, you could still get it, but your chances mm-hmm. are low enough that they're willing to kind of take that risk. But yeah, so those, those are the rules in Manitoba. The funny thing for me so far with this though is my life has barely changed. Like I, I was almost on a quarantine to start with. <laughs> and so we we found out Friday at four, we went to the lake till Sunday night. Uh, we came home, we both worked from home today, which we've done on and off in the last couple of years. And other than having to send Murphy for groceries, we haven't been seeing people like it's really, it really hasn't been a, a huge stress on our lives, but it, it has so solidified for me just the difference, I guess my sort of privilege or my, my what my life is looks like, right? Because it could be a lot worse. Like I could be staring at two weeks in a situation I really didn't yeah. like, whereas it's going to be a little inconvenient, but really it's, it's not going to be the end of the world for us. So kind of, kind of crazy. <laughs> that is crazy, man. That's crazy. <laughs> I can't believe you're scooping my check-in because the same thing is happening to my kids. There. Yeah. No. <laughs> I just, <laughs> you scooped, you, you scooped my scoop. Uh, yeah, no, my, my kids are with their mother for I'm, two I'm weeks your email. Uh, because uh, of a very similar story. And it's interesting because Alberta is clearly different than Manitoba. It's annoying and it's confusing that province per province is different. So lucky for me, they literally got sick there. And the way my call schedule worked, I was off for a couple of weeks so they could just stay with their moms for the entire two weeks till they come back to me this Friday. And it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, I've had my vax, I've been vaccinated since early January and it's Mm -hmm. irrelevant to Alberta Health Services. Uh, You, because of course vaccines are not 100%, we don't know the literature behind the variants yet. And so... um, yeah, they, they couldn't come because if they came here, then I couldn't go to work. Yeah. So uh, so so two points. Uh, it's different province per province. And you said it perfectly. You've always been kind of a phase two to be guy. Like, I mean, this is really your wheelhouse. <laughs> this this in no way has affected you at all. Bruce, quarantine. Yeah. Okay. Bruce, you were kind of, yeah, you were kind of pining for a, a, another fourteen-day quarantine. You're like, Jesus, I've been out out and about in society too much lately. <laughs> too much. I, need I, gotta, to stay home. I gotta pull it back. Sick of all these people up in my space. <laughs> it's, it's too much. 
no kidding. I was at Safeway once this week. That's enough, enough for you. <laughs> before this happened, I, enough enough people. Yeah, no kidding. I, and and part of it was just nice to check that off the the COVID bucket list. Like as long as none of us get sick, I don't want to make light of this because I mean it is still possible that Marnie, you know, any of us get sick. But if not, to add the fact that you actually had to quarantine in COVID. Yeah. 30 years from now when you're telling the story maybe <laughs> adds to it a little bit so check check in with me after next weekend maybe the walls will close in on me too but i'm not i'm not losing i'm i'm getting better sleep now that this happened <laughs> out there i i can't resist just saying this though what's funny manitoba they can't make you go test get tested but if marnie doesn't go get tested at day 10 then murphy and i especially if we hadn't had our vaccine we have to stay another 14 days but if she gets a negative test, we get out in the world. So there's some <laughs> wicked peer pressure from your family for you to go. Like if you didn't want to go get the test. These rules are chaos, man. <laughs> oh, it's madness. But there is such stigma yeah. here that people don't want to get tested. It's crazy. Is Bonnie Seuss at home? Like Artie Parker got shut down by this whole outbreak. 17 teachers Ooh. are having to isolate Whoa. right now. <laughs> and they went to all online school. Like Friday at four, it seemed like it was whatever. It's just another Friday. And by Monday morning, there were so many teachers gone that they've had to go to all online school so they were scrambling around so they're online for two weeks now till this blows over yeah yeah i guess i haven't asked her. yeah i'm guessing yeah. bonnie probably is that's interesting guys i'm gonna take the opposite end of this equation because i am well you guys know this i'm always quarantining because i'm not allowed to leave my house in toronto because <laughs> we're in we're in full we're in full lockdown again you're more phase two than i am yeah but uh i'm the opposite side of the COVID equation from you this time around because my uh my big check-in is i finally got my vaccine <laughs> hey Hoppa. ring the bell ring the bell i got vaccinated i got my shot last week and uh i'm happy for it so now my goal i'm gonna get this is my goal I'm going to get through this entire stupid pandemic without ever getting tested for COVID. That's my goal. I'm going to get out of this without ever having a swab stuck up my well, nose. <laughs> that's going to be a tough one. I That'll be been... a tough one. Did you get that weird side effect of like a 12-hour erection? No, that's Cialis. Sorry. <laughs> that's not the vaccine. I get those two confused all the time. <laughs> you got to dial back on your Cialis there, my friend. I think. Did you guys get side effects from your vaccine at all? When you got your when you got your shots, like I told you last, maybe it was in a text when I said that I did feel kind of crappy and fatigued the next day. But remember, we did that pod, and I had a couple of drinks to celebrate my thing, so I couldn't oh, tell if it yeah, was side effects right. or if I was that's just right. sluggish. I, I I wasn't a real clinical yeah. trial, so uh, but I didn't feel nothing too serious. Marnie felt not good after she got hers. She had a couple yeah. of hard days. I felt I had I had yeah. what I would describe as very mild uh, flu-like symptoms. Like I don't think I had a fever. A little bit like kind of like hot, cold, flashing. Like a little bit, little bit of a headache. But mostly I was just tired. Like the next day I had no, I had zero energy. But that was it. You got no when to hold, when to hold, no when to fold, no when to walk away, and no when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done, you got no way. Okay, the body of the podcast comes from Les. It's his turn. I'm throwing it to you, Lester. What is it? The name of the topic is sliding doors moments. So where that term comes from is... What, did, did just Les freeze or did I freeze? Yeah, yeah, no, no, Les froze. Let me text him. 
Okay, I'm back. Well, we're going to have to do the whole segue again. I'll just start my shtick over from the top then. Cauliflower, cauliflower, broccoli, broccoli. The topic is what's referred to as sliding doors moments. And what a sliding doors moment is, is like a, a critical juncture in your life where that you came up to and you were presented with this quick opportunity where you had to choose path A or path B. And you chose path A and you are where you are today. But every once in a while you can look back to it and think, man, if I had chosen path B, I wonder how different my life might have turned out. It's this concept of these critical junctures. The term comes from a movie from the early 2000s that was called Sliding Doors. It's a story, it's Gwyneth Paltrow, and she wakes up one morning in London. She's like a young executive and she's running to get to work and she's running into the train station. And as she runs up to the tube, the doors of the train close right in front of her. So the sliding doors slam shut. And as a result, she turns around and she walks back to her apartment and she finds her husband in bed with another woman and her life all explodes. And then in the next scene, the exact same thing happens, but she gets there in time and she just gets onto the train. So then the movie keeps flipping back and forth between the two different paths that her life took. And you start wondering like, man, if I had just made that train you know, this would have happened. And if I just missed that train, then this would have happened. And the ripple effect that that has all through the uh, entire rest of your life. George, do you want to go first? You got a good one? Or Lester, do you want to give us ours? Who's, who's leading this one off? I'll go first, I guess, because I brought it up. Okay, so here's, here's my first one. When I finished university way back in whenever it was, 1994, I took the better part of a year and I went backpacking around Asia. Fantastic trip, life-changing, of course, as you might expect. And it was like really incredible. I was on my absolute last stop of my trip. I was on my way home. So I had traveled much longer than I thought I was going to, much further than I thought I was going to, you know, ran out of money. And I was heading home. I had a connection through Seoul, Korea, because I had, only reason I had a connection was because I had, I had flown on Korean Airlines. And so my flight back to Canada connected through Seoul and at no cost, I could get off in Seoul for a couple of days. So I'm like, okay, let's stay, let's just jump off in Seoul for a couple of days and look around, but we weren't going to stay very long because Seoul was a super expensive city, right? We'd been traveling in India and China, Thailand, really cheap places. And Seoul was more expensive than Canada in those days, probably still is. My last day of my entire like eight and a half month trip, and I'm standing in the lobby hallway of a backpacker hostel in Seoul, where in those days, all of the backpackers who went through Seoul, this was like one of like the, the main big places that everybody stayed. So I'm in a place that's very well known for English travelers to be staying when they're in Seoul. And I'm standing there, you know, waiting, we're like, going to kill one last afternoon. And then I'm flying back to Canada the next morning. The payphone on the wall beside me rings, just starts ringing. And I'm like, looking around. There's really, there's nobody there except me. All right. I answer the phone. <laughs> I'm like, hello. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Trying to think of like, I don't even know how to say hello in Korean. I've only been here a day. Right. So I answer the phone <laughs> and over the course of a five minute conversation, the person on the other end of the phone offers me a job teaching English in Korea. 
basically says, look, this place where you're staying, we always look there for English speaking travelers who might want to, you want to stay in Korea for a year and teach English. And we spoke for long enough that she's like, look, I can tell you speak English properly. You've got a university degree. Yeah, I do, you know, blah, blah, blah. Offers me a job on the spot to, to stay in Korea and spend a year teaching English. You guys know the answer to the story is I said no. <laughs> but I thought like I stood there going, oh, man, you know, the whole reason I came over here was to have like a crazy life experience as far away from home as possible. I'm going home because I'm out of money. But in the end, I was like, I'm also going home because I'm, I'm exhausted. I've been traveling a long time. I'd lost 28 pounds. I think I need to go home. I think I'm done. I'm just, I'm just too tired. So I said no. But I often think back and think, man, that would have been, you know, that would have changed potentially the entire trajectory of my life if I had decided to spend 1995 teaching English in Korea instead of coming home and, and getting a, the first job of my actual business career, I suppose, when I, when I came home. So that's my first story. Wow. Like a few of our other storytelling episodes, I'm going to have trouble matching a movie moment like that. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, Bruce, are you telling me since the last episode, you haven't called your daughter a slut or punched your son in the face? You should apologize. (laughs) Is that, that didn't happen? I did get some feedback. They they loved you calling me out on the lightweight apologies. Actually, one of my coworkers that listens to the pod (laughs) loved that part. She said her and her daughter howled. Uh, what you got george you got one like that well great story too bad it's just a story yeah too bad it's a story it's a made-up story it's crazy i've never heard that story like i can't believe i don't know that story less during that year called me at least on two occasions collect when he was having bloody ass discharge and he thought he was going to die <laughs> asking for free medical advice because I was just in med school. This is being completely sensationalized. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Speaking of just a story, <laughs> but it's a good story. But I remember that year because I remember yeah. you telling me and, and I saw you after you came back and you were like, oh my God, I can't believe how skinny you are. You clearly had a big dysentery or something other ailment. Yeah, I lost 28 um, pounds. I was yeah, skinny so that, when I came. I mean, yeah, it wasn't, you were really I was 23. I wasn't big when I left. You know, I was trying to guess what you guys would say. And in my mind, I was going to come up with something funny. Like, oh, I would assume it's our respective ex-wives saying yes to our marriage proposal. That, was <laughs> that turned out to be I an impactful I, day as well. Yeah, that, the, those days for us also changed the trajectory in our lives. But not to bash on them because that's uh, bygones. I've been thinking about this as well. And I realize I have two stories And I bet you guys have a similar story. One is decisions that were made that involved you and then decisions that you made. So I'll start with sort of an Origins Marvel DC Universe type origin story, like a Wolverine story. The guy that raised me, the start of our podcast was the, you know, Sam passing away four years ago when the pod was created. But He wasn't my genetic father, and I had no memory of him. And so when my dad died, my mom moved back to Portugal. And one summer, and this is the sliding doors moment for my entire life, I wouldn't be talking to you if if she didn't make this decision on our behalf. She had two very important people in her life visiting Portugal. Her uncle from Winnipeg, who raised her, and her best friend from Zurich, 
were visiting at the same time. And they both said to her, look, you're 25, 26 years old. You're already a widow. You've got two children. He's been dead for a year and a half. You have to move on. I think it's being toxic, moving back with your parents. You need to come to America, which is what my great uncle said, her uncle. And then her best friend, Fatima, said, no, you should come to Zurich. We can get you a job. There's a great standard of living. And my mom chose Winnipeg. So I went from the Canary Islands to Portugal to Winnipeg, eventually to Thompson, Manitoba. My mom made an, an extremely difficult decision because Canada is coming to America. Like we literally were the 1970s immigrant yeah. coming to America story. Yeah. And we ended up in northern Manitoba about a year after that because I did kindergarten in Winnipeg. So that for sure is my biggest sliding door story that I was part of. And I could have been a professional downhill skier in Zurich or I could have been a bum. <laughs> Who knows? Alberto Tomba. <laughs> That's the biggest sliding door story in my life. But for me personally, the decision I made was probably moving to Australia because I ended up, I got advice from one of my mentors when I was in London, Ontario, and he dropped this word health informatics on me. I had never heard of it before. He said, I think it's the next big thing if you're interested in it. So I started looking around based on one of my mentor giving me advice, and I found the Center of Health Informatics in Australia. And I literally cold called the guy who was my master's supervisor, and I told him my story. And I said, I'd like to come and do a master's with you. Uh, here are my credentials. Here are my references. Uh, obviously, Carrie would come with me to complete her PhD. And I cold called him. And so the sliding door moments was he went, yeah, no, you sound legit. If you can come to the University of New South Wales, I totally will be your mentor and we'll get you a master's. So that was my sliding door moments is cold calling a guy in Australia and saying, I want to do a, a program with you. And then, you know, I became an Australian citizen. My daughter was born there. You know, there's a big connection still there. I will almost certainly go back mm -hmm. to have some time there. So I would say that would be a sliding doors moment. George, one of my favorite stories of your life that I participated in, and you'll have to help me fill in some of the facts around it because it's long enough ago that I've forgotten some of them. But I remember when you had finished med school, first part of your MD in Manitoba, and you were deciding where you were trying to get into a critical care program. You had an interview at University of Western Ontario, where you ended up going right. in, in yeah. London. And I was living in Toronto and you had to fly out for this interview. It was like on a Wednesday afternoon or something in the summer. And I remember I drove to the airport. I picked you up. You were in like shorts and a t-shirt off the airplane. And you had your suit in a bag. And we drove down to London. And you like got out, changed into your suit on like the sidewalk beside <laughs> my car, right? <laughs> changed like fully like laid out, like put on your suit. I helped you adjust your tie because you had no mirror and couldn't even see it. And then you went into your your interview and I literally lay down on the boulevard and just like under a tree in the shade and just had a nap for about an hour <laughs> until you came back out and we we're like, yeah, okay, I'm done. Interview went really well. <laughs> and then you, and you got in and you ended up doing your, your critical care. Was that your residency that you did there or what's the proper term? My fellowship. I had your finished mine. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I was doing internal medicine in Winnipeg. That's a very good recollection of that. I remember you driving yeah. me because the other half of that story 
is I ended up driving from Winnipeg to Toronto in my Colt. And then when I went overseas, I left that car with you. So yeah, that's right. I ended up giving <laughs> yeah. you my car so you and Helte could use it and drive it. <laughs> that's right. You know what? That reminds me of what, what might be a sl- sliding door moment in my life that also involves putting on a suit on the fly. So as I was graduating from recreation at the U of M, I got an interview in Bertle. And uh, so it's like a four-hour drive from Winnipeg to be the rec director out there. Yeah. So got in my truck, same kind of thing, crappy, that Nissan truck that I had for a little while and drove the three hours, three and a half hours, stopped at a Petro Canada, put on a suit. (laughs) Same kind of story. It was kind of springtime, so I didn't change (laughs) outside. Put on a suit, go in, do this interview, and the people are impressed, right? This is the Bertel Rec Commission. So it's like the bakery guy and a school teacher and who knows what, like just anybody in town that (laughs) pretend they're smart. So they're interviewing me. Interview goes great, right? We're talking about rec director and all the programs that you could run and was probably a good fit for it. At the very end of the interview, they said, so do you have any questions for us? And I said, yeah, like that was all great, but do I get to drive the Zamboni? (laughs) <laughs> and they're like no we, we have a facility guy that does that like so i came across as not having a hot clue what the job was <laughs> get back in the truck i'm like oh i was t- my my smart ass ways just did not pan out on that one right so i ended up <laughs> driving all the way back and i didn't get the job so probably the sliding door moment was me doing that zamboni joke because i'm sure i would have got the job if i hadn't said that yeah to finish the sliding door moment you have to think what happened because you didn't get that job? Yeah, what happened because I didn't get that job was I yeah. moved back to Thompson and then I moved to Joe Haven eventually. There you go. And yeah, so, you moved back to Thompson and now here you are 25 years later. Yeah, you made your home there. On my short stint in Killarney, when I was the rec director there, I was in a sort of a rec director's group with the Bertel rec director. <laughs> so I kind of got to know the person that took the job from me. Did you Did you ask him if he ever gets to drive the Zamboni? <laughs> <laughs> I should have. He's like, yeah, all the time. Who else do you think drives yeah. the Zamboni? <laughs> what? They, they just didn't think you looked like you knew how. You, <laughs> you looked too skinny and green. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I was trying to imagine what your respective stories with would be and I assumed your story would be going to Hamlet of Joe Haven as a sliding door moment, but you just went back in time a little bit. So it actually still is the same story because I'm going to guess that then convinced Marnie, you know, we can make a life in the North, right? Because she's not from the North. She's from Winnipeg. Yeah. Because your sliding door moment affects not just you, but everybody around you, right? Like yeah. you drag them with you in our sliding door moments. So uh, yeah, you convinced Marnie to live in the North after that. <laughs> my two probably shining examples in my life are both on moves like that. And Joe Haven, it wasn't Bertle, but it was basically a snap. Like I applied for this job on a flyer, right? I've told you guys that it was over $50,000 a year when that was money that I couldn't imagine Yeah, and got the job. Agreed to it right away, really, without thinking too much. Probably Marnie's sliding door was deciding to come with me because at that point I had sort of agreed to it on my own. We weren't married. My parents were not happy about us going together. Her mom didn't care, but that was a big move for her too, right? She had to quit school, basically take some time off and come up there. So that was a that was a big decision. But the decision to go there wasn't really well thought out. I don't think it was just kind of like, yeah, this is an opportunity. Let's go. Then we moved back. We were living in Killarney. And that is a decision we agonized over like you could not believe. So Marnie was now a student teacher at the school, looked like she was all set for a job. I had this rec job, but more importantly, we lived on a street with four other young couples that were our age. It was like a rolling party all the time. We were playing ball, hockey. It was beautiful there. It was just, it was fantastic, yeah. right? We, we loved every minute of it. 
but I was making zero dollars. Now I had gone from 50K to 15K a year and Marnie was going <laughs> to school. Like we were, we were poor, but we loved living there and we were probably going to stay there. And at the very, very end of it, Marnie didn't get a job because the superintendent gave the job to their kid instead of her and she was oh. more qualified. Nobody in the school could even believe it. It was like the biggest case of nepotism you'd ever seen. And then Thompson Rec Center calls and I'm back up to 50 whatever K a year and we're like, okay, Boom, done. And it's home and yeah, job done. But honestly, (laughs) we spent months agonizing over that decision. Whereas Joe Haven, it was like, let's just go and see what happens. Yeah, let's go and see what happens. But no no regrets on coming to Thompson. I often wonder what Killarney would have looked like. Like we still have Rick Corman still lives there. And I'm glad you mentioned him because I was going to give a shout out because wasn't uh, Rick already there? Because I saw him at our high school reunion. Yeah, yeah, he was living there already. He was our—he was actually our hockey coach because he has had a b- bad knee, and so he was—he was the coach of the team, our senior hockey team and stuff. Is he the Zamboni driver? <laughs> yeah, they didn't, they didn't let him drive the Zamboni. They didn't let me drive the Zamboni in Clarney either. I was the rec director. <laughs> Crying out loud. So yeah, those are my two flip sides. And But now living in Thompson, I mean, look at all the doors that's opened up for us and obviously yeah. no regrets. And it's funny though, because my mom always says her expression, bloom where you're planted. Yeah. I've kind of lived my life that way. I don't have a lot of look backs thinking what would have happened this way or that way. It's kind of like bloom where you're planted, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I think I would say the same thing. I don't have anything that I look back and go, shit, I wish I had done that differently. I mean, little things, you know, insignificant things. But I don't have anything where it's like, man, that was a mistake. I should have done it this way. There are more things that I look back and go, that might have been a wild ride. Here's my answer to your two ex-wives, because I'm still on my first (laughs) wife. And this this is honestly a sliding door moment that I think about a lot. And Marnie and I have talked about it, but not for a long time. I'm not sure she remembers, but... Let's just be clear that George and I each have one ex-wife. You're not referring to either <laughs> one of us as having two ex We each have one ex-wife. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out and make it sound like you both have two ex-wives. <laughs> but we really hadn't been going out for very long. I, I don't even know if you would say that we were a couple at this time. And it was a Friday night. Which means she thought you were a couple, but you did not think you were a couple. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was probably more hoping, and and I'm lucky I didn't get a who are you at this moment, but (laughs) she was working at the liquor store at Unicity Mall, and I was living out by the the university. It was a Friday night. That is not how you met her, is it? No, no, it's not how I met her. We had had met a couple times, but we were just... Okay. Because that would be a great story. <laughs> yeah, I drank a lot phone. in those days. I drank so much that I married to the woman who used to work at the liquor store that I frequented. The clerk at the liquor mart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I knew she was working that night. I kind of had an idea when she was getting off work. And it's one of those things I, again, don't feel like I thought it through. I drove across town to see her. She didn't know I was coming. And I didn't even know what was drawing me there. But I got in my truck drove down their same Nissan truck, just fought my way into the mall as the doors were getting locked and her and her friends were coming out of the liquor store and we kind of met in the hallway and she was like, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) It was just an absolute shock. And and at that moment, I'm like, ooh, this could go either way. Fortunately for you, the term stalking didn't really come into play until about 10 years later (laughs) in general media. (laughs) It was still charming then. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was still charming. I'm just expressing interest in you. I'm not crazy. <laughs> we hung out a bit and the rest is history, but that kind of feels like if I hadn't gone to the mall that night for yeah, no yeah, for sure. reason, who knows? Like, I mean, probably we would have got together, but it was kind of a, I think it was a, it was a bit of a defining moment for us. So, yeah. there you go. so Bruce, I didn't know that story. I'm glad that you told us that, but we, we played on the same volleyball intramural team before that story, right? Or was that afterwards? I think it was afterwards. 
It was afterwards that we played on the same team, but you played with Marnie and Catherine and those guys for a while when I didn't play on your team. And that's remember, remember we played a couple Saturday afternoons, like we all just got together and hacked right. around. So like you say, we, we knew each other and you guys had been at a party at our house, but this was very shortly after that. So it wasn't, uh, like I said, it wasn't that we didn't know each other at all, but we weren't, uh, we weren't very close at that time. So I just want to put it on the record. I knew Marnie before you did. I just want to... <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a true story. <laughs> you know, George, that's a plug for Bruce. Because that yeah. means that she passed you over and chose him. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's nothing going on from that perspective, for sure. I, I didn't know that. It's crazy that you drove, for anyone that's been in Winnipeg, in case there's overseas listeners, I hope, you probably drove by 150 liquor stores to get to Marty <laughs> to get to Unicity Mall. You clearly made this effort. There's a liquor store on every corner in Winnipeg. Like, Winnipeg can sell a lot of booze. <laughs> oh, oh I good. was looking for Labatt's Light, uh, like yeah. the other 150 places you could have found it. <laughs> Especially at that time, any liquor I could afford was available on every corner. That's right, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. It was not specialty items. Well, listening to you guys tell your stories, I'm realizing that both of the stories that I came prepared with tonight, they're both times where I decided to say no to an opportunity instead of times when I decided to say yes to an opportunity. So I may have to try to think of another story. But here's, here's my second one. Oh, when would it have been? It would have been um, 97, I think, like 96, 97. So when I left Winnipeg, I lived in Calgary for less than a year. I moved out there in the fall. Yeah, I moved out there in the fall of 96. And then the summer of 97, I left and I moved to Toronto. The spring of 97... I went to Calgary to work for a, a dot-com startup, the true dawn of the internet dot-com 1.0 startup days. The company had run out of money and gone under, and I was doing nothing in Calgary. So I had quit a very good job in Winnipeg, moved to Calgary for this startup, and now I was just trying to decide, okay, what am I going to do? I didn't really like Calgary that much. No offense, George. No offense. I know we have a lot of Calgary listeners. It was a long time ago. I like Calgary <laughs> a lot better now. But I wasn't that smitten with Calgary. I didn't know, really know what I was going to do. You know, I wasn't that far out of my diving days, right? Like my about five years, I think the last time I competed was 93. Diving nationals, winter senior nationals were in Edmonton. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go up to Edmonton for the weekend, see my old diving buddies, just hang out, see the diving community. And I'm sitting in the stands and uh, when my diving career, my competitive diving career ended, I actually spent a summer working in a... Uh, professional high diving show. I remember you talking about that too. It sounds insane. With Thompson. So that was, yeah, that yeah. was like the best summer job I ever had, right? I, that was, I was at Olympic trials in 92 and I wasn't competing because I'd torn my shoulder up the second time about four months before the trial. So I was there and I wasn't competing and there was a scout for a European high diving show. What they do is they just go around to big events and they hire up the people that don't win. Because it's like, okay, you go to Olympic trials, you either win, you're going to the Olympics, or you lose, and you're like, oh, what am I going to do now? Well, I might as well go make some money working in a circus show in Europe, right? So they sent scouts out to these events, and uh, I picked up a job, and I went and spent a summer high diving in, uh, in a circus show. Before you go on, do you have circus yeah. performer on your resume? <laughs> Not anymore. I grew, I grew past that. That's one you don't blank off. You keep, you keep that on. <laughs> you keep talking about it, yeah. I had professional like circus show experience, I guess, on the, on the resume in 97 as I'm sitting watching Diving Nationals. And this guy, 
comes up and he sits down beside me in the stands. He goes, hey, uh, you're last. And I said, yeah. I said, hey, nice to know you. I'm so-and-so, you know, blah, blah. Nice to meet you. I know this friend of yours, that friend of yours. I'm yeah, cool. And he's like, what are you doing these days? I said, you know, just shooting the shit. Well, I'm not doing much. I'm debating. I think I might move to Toronto, you know, living in Calgary. And he says, listen, I work for Cirque du Soleil. We are putting together a water show in Vegas that's going to be all diving. We're hiring people who have high diving circus show experience. And I'm like, dude, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and uh, we had a lengthy conversation about it. I was like, yeah, wow. I don't know. I don't know. It went to the point of the next day. He actually gave me a contract and I had it for a long, I don't know where it is now. For the longest time I kept it, but I had a job offer from Cirque du Soleil to go work in Vegas in what is I don't even know if it's still there. It was there for a long time. The water show called O that became a yeah. huge... Marnie and I went to O when we were in Vegas. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, you went yeah. to O. I went to O many, many years later as well. It was $60,000 US, room and board provided. And it was a one-year contract. And at the time, I wasn't working. I was like, what do I want to do with my life? <laughs> and it was incredibly tempting. I decided, you know what, like this is probably a bad path for me to go down. Hookers and blow. Right at the very early part of my career of thinking, <laughs> I got to get serious. You know, I got to get a real job. I got to start my professional career. What I don't need to do is go work in a circus show in Vegas. So I turned it down. Every once in a while, I think back and think, fuck, that would have been a wild story. Eh? <laughs> God, how many times would you have gotten buddies coming down to Vegas? during that year, right? Because you think about that, you'd be a resident of Vegas. Yeah. You would have had the craziest year. Yep. You would have been the guy. You've been the guy that could uh, show us the places in Vegas. Yeah, but having said that, these things always sound more glamorous than they really are. Room and board was probably going to be like some terrible dorm room five miles off the strip shared with four guys <laughs> like you're in a college <laughs> dorm together. You would have worked a ton of hours, you know, doing shows at night, finishing up at midnight or whatnot. It would have been... It would have been a pretty wacky existence, but it would have been uh, it would have been fun too. It would have been fun. Part of it at that point too, I knew like my shoulder was so wrecked at that point, it would have been a stretch to sign that contract and say, "Oh yeah, I can do I can go do this physically." I'm not sure how long with the wear and tear that those guys put on their bodies. I'm not I'm not sure how long you know I would have really been able to hold that up before I would have had to quit. But tempting opportunity. So Les, take this as a compliment. You probably would have been the biggest diver because when I went to CO, all those fucking guys were like five, one, five. Like they were tiny oh, yeah. guys, and you would have been a fucking Andre the Giant compared to them. Like they're all super tiny guys. I ended up being too big for my chosen sport this summer in Tokyo, and, and you watch the men's diving finals. Nobody's going to be six feet tall. Like in, in my era of diving, I was big. Now I'm like way too big to be, yeah. you know, Olympic, Olympic caliber. Would you tell our kids or your kids to do that looking back? Like that a year isn't as important when you're 50 as it is when you're 22. Like I couldn't say that yeah. I wouldn't tell my kids not to just go have that experience. That's like playing a year of crazy junior hockey. I understand all the things you're saying, right? You were going to work, you were going to do 10 shows a week probably or 15 or 20 and the living was going to be shitty, but... You lived in Vegas for a year, man, and you were in the <laughs> yeah. circus. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Right? For sure. <laughs> you know what, Bruce? It's funny. I think it's one of the things that you gain with wisdom as you age 
is exactly what you just said. You realize that a year out of your life is nothing. And when you're young, it feels like such a long period of time. And it feels like so important. We're put on this treadmill when we're kids of thinking we have to climb, 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 right? You got to get through high school, get good grades, go to university, get good grades, get that job, climb the corporate ladder, right? Like you've got to do this stuff in a rush. And when you get to our age, you're like, dude, you just want to slow everything down. (laughs) Take advantage of of these opportunities. Looking back, would I burn a year again and know now that it has basically zero impact on the the length of your life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I would tell you to tell your kids to go work in a circus show in Vegas, but (laughs) I think I was more concerned with the non-diving related temptations that living in Vegas for a year were going to afford me. Oh, 100%, right? Like that was going to take me down a path that probably wouldn't have been too healthy for me. Unless you could have been uh, Mickey Rourke, the barfly guy, (laughs) turning into a total fucking alcoholic. To all my friends. <laughs> Believe me, a lot of my old diving buddies are that guy. <laughs> well, you might have ended up as one-arm Hanson too. Like you might have totally lost an arm because you busted it up so bad. So maybe there could have been long, lifelong impacts. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> maybe I'll say one last thing because you brought up the story that actually has helped me decide stuff. So when you went and did that year abroad and you called me, a couple of times. Like, obviously, that's a funny story now. <laughs> I called you once. <laughs> One of the reasons why I ended up going to Australia was because of you, Les. I remember you telling me what a positive year you had. And I was that guy that was, mm-hmm. I'm going to get into university. I'm going to get into med school. I'm going to do this. Like, you have known me to do nothing else but achieve yeah. my goal. You had never taken a break. You had never taken a I've break. I've never taken a break. I was super focused. But I've had a great time along the way. Yep. Like, you know, I've traveled, I've done stuff. I feel like I've had a pretty awesome life and continue to, to do so. But I do feel along the way I might have been too focused. So with your experience, that made my decision to move overseas easier. You know, I just got my ICU fellowship. I was working, if you remember, in Hamilton yep. and Windsor, Ontario. Like I had to got a job offer. And I said, you know what? I wanted to end up somewhere other than a small community. I see I'm going to have to do a master's and, you know, keep going, but why not do it somewhere cool? Yep. I've never been to Australia. You know, we end up being there almost five years. Yep. I'm... And obviously quite a, quite a big part of my life was there. And I still think of it quite fondly. And then I moved that forward and I've been talking to Zara, my daughter about this, where she's now gotten into uh Western, a pretty good school here in Calgary, public school. They have an international program where they can do a year abroad, which we never had other than, I guess, the rotor exchange in high school. Both her and her mother and I have talked saying, you know, we totally want her to go a year abroad. And when she goes a year abroad, she'll go to a Spanish speaking country. I will take a sabbatical and I will go with her or I'll at least be near her. Because uh, I want her to have the experience of being independent, but so uh, yeah, like I'm not going to move in with her. You need to helicopter yeah. a little bit. We're still like <laughs> yeah. that. No, no, but I yeah. Well, why, why not go learn whatever I want to learn and resubmerge myself in a Spanish culture? It does seem like a big deal, probably because percentage-wise, one year out of twenty is different than one year out of fifty. It is more. But uh, if you could give yourself any advice going backwards, since we're talking about sliding door moments, yeah, maybe it's not the yes or the no of it, but uh, the decision isn't as big as you think it is, but in the moment, it does seem so. Yeah. 
some, sometimes it's not such a big rush. You know what I remember about you going to Australia, George? Oh, I remember talking to you about it and you going through the thought process yeah. of deciding yeah. and, and saying to me, like, you know, you've done these things, you've traveled, you've, and I haven't done any of that stuff. And I remember just having that conversation. And I believe, at least in my memory, I was a big proponent of you doing it. I was like, yeah, do it. Like, you know, yeah. go experience yeah, something. Yeah, you were. Yeah. But what I remember is you saying to me, when you were saying goodbye to me, you were leaving, and you looked at me and you said, Hanson, every one of my friends is telling me they're going to come visit me. You know no one is going to come visit me all the way in Australia. <laughs> Don't be that fucking guy. Don't be that guy. And you you kind of like bullied me a little bit. You're like, you're like you poked me. Don't be that fuck. Don't be one of those guys who says you're going to come visit and not come visit. And I held on to that like a colonel. You were there for five years. So I held on to that for like four and a half years thinking I'm going to go. I, I'm not going to be one of those guys. He thinks I'm going to punk out like a rose. No, I'm going to go visit George. You eventually you sent me an email and said, okay, clock's ticking because we are coming home in six months or something. And I yeah. turned to my then wife and said, okay, we're going to Australia. We have a deadline. we got to go to Australia. And I did. I came and visited <laughs> you. We had a great time. To add a little bit more texture, I flew from Australia to your wedding. <laughs> so I feel like <laughs> I made the trip back. Yeah, you did. <laughs> wow. 10 years and later, so though. 10 years later. What's that? It was 10 years later. No, I was still in Australia when I oh, flew I to your t- wedding. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. What? Yeah, I was still there. I came there because there's a very funny story associated with Carrie not attending your wedding. So I came to your wedding, and then we went back. And then when you came to visit us with your broken foot, Carrie was already pregnant with Zara. So you came in the last... And I had a broken ankle. That's right. Yeah. So you came under duress. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not writing off this trip. What are you talking about? Forget it. No, we got plans. Like, we're going. <laughs> tickets are paid for. <laughs> going to Australia. Putting on the air cast. I hobbled my ass around Australia in one of those big walking boots for the entire time we were there. <laughs> but it was still a fantastic trip. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was a good one. Tomato timer went off a long time ago. Anybody got one more they really want to tell? I have one about me showing up at a radio station in a cowboy outfit, but you guys got to sit on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I'm realizing in talking to you guys about this, like clearly the biggest, like the most impactful decision that I ever made was deciding to move to Winnipeg, leave and move to Winnipeg when I was 14. And I can tell you in, in detail how that, that decision was made. And it's a pretty crazy story in hindsight, being that I was so young. I'm just disappointed nobody's moment was joining this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what you watching? Just between you and me, what you're streaming on your TV, let me see. What you're watching? Action, drama, comedy, what you're streaming on your TV. Full disclosure, I ripped that theme song off from one of my other favorite podcasts. It's called the Snow Boots Podcast. No, what is it called? It's called the Rubber Boots Podcast. The host of that one would have probably got the name of ours wrong too. Star of the show, Lester McLean wrote that jingle. You might have heard of some of the other guys, James Duthie from TSN, Puffy, and master producer, Stoff, the guy I someday aspire to be. Maybe by shouting them out on our pod, they'll give us a little shout out. Come on, Duthie, give us a little love. George, you suggested that I should watch the Education Scandal documentary on Netflix. And I suggested that you should watch the 
QAnon documentary. So we took each other's suggestions. Bruce, you haven't watched either of these, so we're going to cut you out of this conversation. Was there anything that blew you away in that QAnon documentary? What's it called again, Les? Into the Storm? Yeah, Q Into the Storm. Yeah, Q Into the Storm. And it's basically this great documentary that took place over three years where they just go back to the, you know, pre-re-election of Trump and the emergence of this uh, nefarious character, seemingly Q, Mm -hmm. and the followers of QAnon. I would say it's frightening Mm -hmm. just how information and lies can be weaponized. So it's Mm -hmm. frightening. And then two, it's ridiculously disappointing that how (laughs) successful it was. Yeah. And and who the culprit likely is. Yeah. And yeah, it's the search for who is Q. It's trying to figure out who Mm -hmm. is the actual person Q behind the whole QAnon phenomenon. And uh, at the end, the, the documentarian proposes that he has figured out who it is. Ooh. You know, he reaches a conclusion and he says, this is Q. So first question, George, do you believe that he is correct? I believe it is someone with that exact phenotype. <laughs> oh, come on. That's not, <laughs> that's not an answer. Do you an answer. Do you believe it or not? I'll say yes. I'll say I, yeah. I believe it is he is integral in it. Yeah. Uh, but what I meant by that comment, it is a very smart, introverted person who understands what it is to be a digital warrior and how he can affect change. So I think it's somebody very similar (laughs) to that. I don't think it's overseas, nefarious, military-style person that's trying to free the U.S. masses. This is a five-minute answer to a (laughs) yes-no question. I said, do you believe it is the person, yes or no? You said Uh, yes, and and I told you yes. You know, Les, we're not selling any... space for money right like we don't have any <laughs> advertisements that we have to tie like i could i could speak as much as i wanted and bruce can just like delete the whole fucking thing <laughs> save me listening to it twice when you get to the end and you see who it actually is it is completely embarrassing <laughs> it is just an it, it's absolutely astonishing that such n- insignificant persons could create such a ridiculous following <laughs> of loyal disciples. So we'll leave it at that because we don't want any spoilers, but that's what I thought was the most <laughs> yeah. incredible thing about learning, learning the true answer to who is behind Q. That's why I said it's that's depressing. It. Yes, depressing as well. Yeah, it's depressing. Yeah, that's why it's like, depressing to me that, that, that he, it could work yeah. as well as it did yep. and um, really fractured sh- the GOP. That should have been a trailer for the documentary. Actually, you wrapped that up pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> we should charge them, George. We should be selling ad space right now. <laughs> yeah. The documentary, George, that you suggested that I should watch about all the very wealthy people and some celebrities who all got busted paying for their kids to get into top tier universities in the US. It's totally worth watching if you followed that story at all. It's recreated with actors, but it's actually taken from the wiretap transcripts of the actual mm. re- recorded phone calls. It's legit. It's the actual conversations that these people were having with the central figure who was running this entire scam. We kind of talked it to death when we talked about education, about how it's sad to realize that, you know, the top schools in America have nothing to do with merit and education anymore. They only have to do with money. There's two things I'll say, George, that really struck me in watching that documentary. The first was 
Bruce, this guy had a plan that he called the side door. And one of his side door ways of getting your kids into school was he put together a whole package and he basically got them accepted on an athletic scholarship for a sport that they didn't play. I've heard this story, bizarro things, right? Rowing and fencing and all kinds. Rowing, sailing, tennis, like all the country club sports, right? These people paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for him to set up this scam. The thing that I thought was so astounding was the fact that these institutions and like that whole ecosystem at a certain level made it okay for people to pay, you know, $400,000 for their daughter to get into Stanford and take an athletic scholarship. Compare that to thinking about all the times that we've heard of and documentaries we've watched about actual NCAA athletes on scholarship poor basketball, football players, you know, these kids that come up and they get these scholarships and they have no money. You know, a booster takes them out for pizza and they can lose their fucking scholarship because somebody gave them $25 for pizza money. Like the famous, we're big Fab Five fans, the Chris Mm -hmm. Webber and Jalen Rose documentary Mm -hmm. when they're talking about the fact that they're standing outside McDonald's and they don't have enough money to go in and buy themselves a meal but the school is selling their jersey for 150 bucks in the window beside them and, the, and how kind of upside down it was. <laughs> so the juxtaposition of those two stories, given that the focal point is athletic scholarships, I thought was somewhat profound. And then the other thing, it was pretty amazing to listen to the conversations that these people, men and women who were high-powered, wealthy people, the conversations that they were having, and they're verbatim because they're from wiretaps, they're just astonishing how foolish these people were. My favorite part of the whole thing was the guy who says, you know, he's talking about illegally paying half a million dollars to get his daughter into Stanford because the guy is going to have someone else write her admissions test fraudulently. And he's asking, he's, okay, let me, sorry, I know we talked about this already, Jim, but let me run through this one more time. I want to make sure I understand it because, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I kind of have to be, you know, play by the rules on this type of stuff. <laughs> he literally <laughs> says that while he's committing fraud on a phone call. And that guy got, that guy ended up going to, he got a five month prison sentence. I'm assuming he's no longer a lawyer. And this isn't like a lawyer, like, you know, the guy that you're paying 600 bucks to do your mortgage closing when you buy your cottage. This is a guy who was a partner at a white shoe firm on Wall Street, you know, doing billion dollar deals. Like this was a very wealthy, very powerful (laughs) lawyer. And I I was just astonished that the level that, you know, I guess you just grow into this feeling of being absolutely untouchable. We don't get caught for these things because we're kind of untouchable in society. And I found that kind of blew my mind. But the other poignant figure was this was this guy's side door for getting into Harvard or Stanford. And when one of the guys queried him and said, well, what does it cost to go in the front door? You know, in the old days, you wanted your kid to go to Harvard. You just made a donation to the school. Bruce, what do you think the, the price tag on that is? How much do you think you would have to pay Harvard to get your kid a guaranteed admission into Harvard, front door admission. If I needed Paige to get into Harvard, yep. 10 million? He said it's 45 mm-hmm. or $50 million. $50 million <laughs> to buy your kid into the front door. Like that's how much, you, you, you show up with a $10 million check at Harvard, they're like, yeah, whatever, dude, get in line. Get in line. Your kid's going in that line over there with all those other kids. $10 million. Like, what is going on in the world? When, when you take like $50 million. $50 million. Oh, man. That just, that just blew me away.
So anyway, those are the... And what's the value proposition there? Like, would most of those kids, even that went to Harvard, how long would it take them to make $50 million? Uh, well... I mean, I guess there's lots of different paths and lots of layers to that. The reality like, is, if your parents are rich enough to write a $50 million check to get you into Harvard, you're probably going to roll out of Harvard and go work in a self-funded and self-funding environment provided by your parents anyway. And yeah. uh, <laughs> so who cares? Right. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not like you're the first of your family to go to college and, you know, your family takes a second mortgage on the house and you take out loans and you become a doctor. And then over time you pay it all back. Like, no, that, that doesn't happen in that stratosphere. It's, it's, not, it's, not on the front door. It's admission. crazy. The whole yeah. concept of it has just gotten so out of control. It's so ludicrous. So ludicrous. I think you've wrapped that up nicely. The name is Operation Varsity Blues. Uh, there you go. Yeah. I think... You misstepped there. I think you meant the back door is how you pay to get in because the front door is you just get 1600 on the SAT or the whatever the equivalent is in the States. And on merit, that's how you get in the front door with a scholarship. The back door is generational wealth. Isn't that the way they explained it? Like the front door is me uh, and you walking be... in the front door because of merit. Yeah, but I think at the end he refers to the front door as being the big ticket check as well. But you're, okay. but you're right. Yeah, that would let's let's hope that that is the that there is That's still the... a legitimate and honest way to get in. But when you start yeah. thinking about Stanford has X number of admissions per year, and what percent of them are being given basically for financial reason, and then athletic scholarships like legit athletic scholarships. How many, say they let in, whatever, 2,500 students a year, how many of those kids are getting in on merit? Like, do they have like 10% of them are actually getting in on merit? It was pretty disheartening to, to think through that whole <laughs> process. But what used to be considered part of the elite education experience is, you know, you get into a top, top school, then every other student in your class is really smart because they had to get into Harvard. And you're like, mm. wow, so now you're in this environment, you've got the best teachers and the best resources and the smartest kids in your class. Well, if half of them cheated and paid their way in, that's no longer true. Yeah. <laughs> you've watered down the entire concept of having an elite level educational facility by saying, well, half the kids don't even want to be here. They're here because their dad wrote a big check or their mom <laughs> wrote a big check. It does kind of turn the, the whole educational experience upside down again. The Ray Charles uh, story just got put on Netflix. I don't know if you watched that when it first came out, but I really didn't know oh, yeah. much about Ray Charles and it's the story of his life and it's worth watching. It's a, it's a bit of an eye opener. So check it out. Nice. With Jamie Foxx? Yeah, the one with Jamie Foxx. I think it actually came out like in 2004, but a friend of ours yeah. oh, uh, had said, I, I was up one night, I couldn't sleep, so I turned this thing on and I couldn't stop watching it. It blew my mind. And so Marnie and I sat down <laughs> last night and, and like it's a little long. It's over a couple hours. Yeah. Pretty good. Like, I mean, I didn't know the story of his life. He led a, a way more exotic life than I think I would have ever expected. So yeah, cool. yeah. I just, I literally just spent the weekend, Alex and I binging this show on Netflix called The Serpent. Oh, yeah. Megan's watching The Serpent. Okay. So the cool thing yeah. for me watching The Serpent is that it's all like in Bangkok. It's set in 1976. I was there in 1994 and it was exactly the same. To the extent that we had a guy befriend us, talk to us, introduce us to a gem scam and walk us through the, the whole thing, played like the long game scam, you know, became our buddy, yeah. you know, like hanging out and said, look, I got a great way for you guys to make money because Thai people can't do this, but people with outside hard currency cash can, can do this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the whole thing, I was like, oh my God, like this is reminding like so many things. 
like in that story, you said, I don't know if you've been watching it at all with her, but no, I didn't watch it. The people that get involved with this guy who is running gem scams in Bangkok doesn't end well for any of them. None of them. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a Canadian connection, right? Some yeah, girl yeah, from his, Montreal. His girlfriend or... is, is Canadian. It's, a, it's yeah. all based on, it's all a completely true story. It's funny because we, I didn't even know what the show was about when we started watching it. And 15 minutes in, I had to hit pause. I go, okay, Alex, this is freaking me out. Like, I swear to God, this exact same thing, like the way the first 20 minutes of the show sets up, this exact same thing happened to me like my first week in Bangkok, the first week of that trip overseas. It was like, ah! and Roomed. so I was texting with Jody, the girl that I was traveling with at that time. I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're doing these days, but you have got to watch this show, The Serpent, even if you don't like it, watch the first half hour of the first episode. She's like, oh, okay, I totally will. The next day she texts me, she's like, oh my God. And she was reminding me of aspects of the fact that she actually knew somebody that worked in the gem industry in Norway. So she called that person and we had like, we had gone down like a pretty lengthy thought process of whether we should try to make some money on this, on this scam. Like we didn't know it was a scam, but, and he was like, no, stay away from that. The gems that come out of Bangkok, they're always fake. It's a scam, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she, and she made the point to me. She's like, I've never been more happy that we didn't meet and hang out with the coolest people in Bangkok when we were there in the show they're like pool parties and like super like cool and getting in then they all end up drugged and murdered discarded passports stolen and i'm like fuck that could have been a good sliding door i guess technically it was we we didn't take the uh the gem scam and we didn't get drugged and have our passports stolen and get killed and dumped on the beach in pataya <laughs> hey girls, that's it that's the end you probably found us already on social media but if not at snow day pod tell your friends we've also got an email snowdaypod at gmail.com send us a voice memo maybe we'll put your voice on the show thanks to the rest of our team social media todd producer mike and the secret weapon Shannon Bison. My only other rabbit hole I would have took us down, but we don't have to go there. Is is you're right, Les? It's almost like your life isn't the sliding door that I thought about. It's a million micro decisions. Yeah, you know, like that's how parenting your kids is. There's there aren't too many you look back and you think, man, I should have gone this direction or that. Like maybe a, maybe a year away is one of those big ones, but more it's like just day to day course corrections yep. right <laughs> and, and yeah, relationships sure. are this, the same ways with your wife or your partner it's there aren't too many of those you know butterfly effect moments i don't think but it's more just a million micro decisions